My name is Eleanor Burke. Uh, I am the chairperson of the Uruk Justice Commission. I'm a Wagaya and Wamba Wamba descendant and a member of uh, Native Title Group in northwestern Victoria. You're the chair of the Justice Commission. Just tell us a little bit about the Justice Commission and your role. Uh, the Uruk has been set up to investigate the um, impact of colonisation on Aboriginal people and the continuing impact uh, or trauma that Aboriginal people have experienced since colonisation. Uh, it has very broad terms of reference and it has uh, a number of objectives so we can measure the outcomes but it is to ensure that we hear Aboriginal voices to underpin what is on the public record but also to amend the record because most of the uh, information on the public record has been written by other people, not from our perspective. We've never been asked to do this before anywhere in Australia and so this is an historic moment for us after a couple of hundred years of colonisation having Aboriginal people speak to what really happened when uh, uh, white people came to uh, Australia. What historical and ongoing injustices do you expect to find? There are many things. I mean, there, there, I mean, there's obviously racism, and racism uh, is um, experienced through housing, health services, or lack of, and uh, in employment. I mean, right from the beginning. But the the, the whole uh, system is somebody else's system, and we've had to do the best we can. But the damage was done when people were moved off their country, people were moved in a way that they could not get back to their family or place in, in, their, in their lifetimes and that is in many Aboriginal families, First Nations uh, stories, uh, it's known from the generations back, three, four, five generations, it's not, it's not a, a story that's lost and of course that is carried with people and the um, experience that people ex ex have are uh, negative experiences within systems that are not uh, not our systems. So, uh, you know, from the time an Aboriginal child may go to school, and I can speak from experience, because you are different, you're the one person with brown skin, you look different from other people, uh, you are treated differently. There is no um, understanding about being Aboriginal in that sort of space. And I think many Victorians have grown up without knowing the story of what it means to be an Aboriginal person in, uh, in Australia these days. And I think uh, one of the things that's really important is for us, and it's in our terms of reference, to create an official public record which embeds the voices, underpins other recommendations that we'll make, but also correct the official record that exists at the moment, you know, that Cook discovered Australia, what he didn't, you know. Terra nullius is the, the most terrible lie ever told in this country. Uh, and, uh, you know, we all know that. We all know that. But the law did that. And so we've got this situation where not only have we suffered the personal trauma and the loss of uh, family and uh, place and language, culture, we also have a situation where the law kept building more and more against us, uh, making it harder, higher fences, jump, harder obstacles to overcome in order to take a place that could be 
similar to other Victorians, if you like, or other Australians, but we never quite make it because it's not our, not our frame of reference at all. Why, why do you think the law did that? Well, it's colonial law, isn't it? The British settled and, uh, and they're very, uh, very, I mean, our universities, our schools, and, and as I say, the law, the legal system, that, that's just embedded in, in the beginnings of history. I mean, for example, in, in legislation, up until, towards the end of the 1980s, there existed 67 definitions of what an Aboriginal person or who an Aboriginal person is. I mean, you couldn't make it up. Since that time, I'm sure we've probably got past the hundred definitions of who. And this is legislation that was about Aboriginal people, about how people could live in a place like this here at Banyanda, uh, that we had to live in certain ways. And people were employed to ensure that Aboriginal people had to live under the way the law said. And I'm talking about kids, you know, going to school and being examined, whether they had munyas, hair lice, whether they uh, were allowed to go into the school, they had to be checked first. You know, these things were, they were rigid, they were quite uh, draconian really when you hear them today. So um, that was practice in places like this, you know, they, the places that are called mission stations were very much controlling uh, of Aboriginal people and education and Christianising were the main purpose of those places. Has that led to intergenerational trauma among First Nations people? It certainly has. It carries on. Some people do not cope well if they've lost family, lost their support systems, their extended family. It carries on. It's perpetuated by things that happen uh, just in communities that we all inhabit now where, you know, have the issues of um, education is not... Uh, something that people are able to go and attain in a way that helps them in life. People struggle to uh, to find work. Young people can get into trouble just the same as any any young person with drugs and alcohol. All of those things perpetuate, and it becomes a vicious circle for some people and some families uh, as well. And depending on where they are and how much support they can get, they get lost or some people do get up and really make a go of it uh, and make a change in their lives but it is very hard and some of those people we're hearing from people like that who have told us about being incarcerated for a long time and then at some point in their life they make a decision you know in one instance where you know this is enough I have to do something and a particular incident we were told about this individual made a decision to go and live completely in a different place and start afresh but have the smallest network of people possible so it's more in control of his own behaviour and he did all right he was now an older person and told us his story but he did it on his own Many people come from big families and they know they're from big families. If they lose them, it's very hard. And so we have this thing where the, the women, uh, mothers and grandmothers are so strong, they keep looking after ones that fall by the wayside if they're in a position to support that and try and lift them up. But it doesn't always work because people's levels of income are much lower than need be in these situations and as I mentioned racism permeates education and housing as well access to housing can be very hard for some of our people 
in places that are, you know, touristy. You know, competition is difficult. Is that sort of racism and injustice more prevalent, do you think, in regional areas? It's harder because there, there is the, I suppose, the tyranny of distance to some extent and the, the lack of social support networks. I'd like to think it, it, it is changing because we do have organisations that have developed and, as you know, visiting, uh, been visiting some here in the last couple of days and they do provide some networks but they provide networks for the few who are able to be nearby to access, access that. It's not a, a universal thing and so uh, again, you know, things get perpetuated because we're existing in this kind of structure that's limited, possibly by what's available, how it's available, and where people are to access it. You know, saw the school bus coming out here. You know, there used to be a school here. No longer a school here. So there's that trip for kids, and sometimes in that situation, some kids don't want to go to school. So that's one of the issues of the further away you get from, I suppose, some bigger places, it is harder for people. How do we prevent a recurrence of injustices against First Nations people? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is about awareness, about people understanding, knowing and learning about our culture, but knowing and learning about the land, because our land is, <laughs> you know, one old man from another place used to say, our, our land is like a storybook. It, it tells you all of the things on it are written. And he's talking about, uh, you know, the rivers, the waterways, the birds, the bird life, all of the things that um, most people love about Australia. But people don't know the stories that we know about. You know, we, we talk about Bunjil, the, the big one, but we all have in smaller places we have stories about our totems which is part of our identity and those animals, birds or whatever are precious to us, they're part of our identity but they're part of how we behave in relation to their existence wherever we live, uh, places, trees, everything you know and I think we have a greater interest now in people trying to think about caring for country in the way we've talked about it but I think people don't understand how much damage has been done and, uh, and I don't have to give you a lecture on, you know, what happens to the waterways and uh, what's happening in the big cities where, and on, on the coastal areas where, you know, holiday houses are slipping into the sea. All of those sorts of things are all to do with mistreatment of land in addition to climate change, which is a big, big change in some places. Has changed in a way that is not as we knew the seasons. In respect of the historical injustices that you'll be exploring, do you expect to probe the massacres that took place in East Gippsland? We have genocide massacres, and uh, dislocation, of course, is harsh. It's very harsh. Kangaroos were killed, so that was our food. Sheep were stolen, there were reprisals and the fights, people were killed. And genocide and massacres are within our terms of reference uh, and uh, we will be looking at those. And of course we, uh, we're aware of um, a lot of work that's been done in this space and in Victoria of course there are 
Aboriginal families and Aboriginal places where are known within families stories about those things happening and it'll be interesting to see how that matches what's on the public record but that is part of the terms of reference. As I said earlier you have the powers of a royal commissioner what's going to be the end result? Well, the end result is to report to the government and the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria and uh, of course we will be making recommendations in, in, the, in the usual way and we're hoping that we will make recommendations that are groundbreaking. Uh, one of the things that our people are very cynical about uh, are about royal commissions or commissions of inquiry uh, and you know about deaths in custody which has continued on about um, other injustices in other spaces as well where recommendations are written and no, no action follows and people ask us that all the time. We're hopeful that things that have happened in the last 20 years in this state, where steps have been taken to strengthen people who still live in the places that they originally came from and are caring for country in a way that government has supported them, are going to be able to receive recommendations and be supported by the First Peoples Assembly in implementing and the lobbying of governments to do things differently. And of course reparations are also in the, um, in the terms of reference and that should enable some, some action for people but it, it does depend on how the government of the day receives it. In reality, I mean, this is a, a space that needs bipartisan agreement right across Australia because this is the first time there's been such an exercise in Australia. It's very important that we get this right and we get a good result and that we have our people embrace what we are putting forward and it's acceptable to them and to the government so that we can have those changes that you're asking uh, me about. When can we expect a final report? Well, we're, we're due... Uh, it's a three-year exercise initially and we have lost time uh, and we have an interim report, which is very much on our minds at the moment, due at the 30th of June this year, which is only a few weeks away. And, and um, we uh, will foreshadow certain things in that. But uh, the final report is due in 2024, whether or not... Um, you know, it may well be that we need to seek uh, an extension uh, because of what happened with COVID, because we could not travel last year at all because of the lockdowns. So there's a, there's a natural in inclination to think about that, but we haven't made that decision yet until we finalise the interim report. Professor Eleanor Burke, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Thank you very much.